dude, are you ready to hit record and then start talking? I realize that all of my parodies are just about how to start a podcast. How's it going? Are you ready? We're live. I'm. Oh, we're live. That was recorded. Yeah. That's the take you're going with. Um. One take Timmy, that's what they call me. <laughs> one take Timmy. I don't know why I didn't say Tony. Why did I say one take Tony? The alliteration is right there for me. <laughs> I guess you're a South Park fan? I am a South Park fan, but that's definitely not where that came from. Oh, where does it come from? I just forgot other <laughs> T names, including my own. That's probably because you think of your name as Anthony, not Yeah, Tony. I do. I never introduce myself as Tony. No. Do you feel cool when you introduce yourself as Tony? No, I feel weird, actually. Why? I don't like it. You don't feel like a Tony? Be, it, it would feel the same as if you introduce yourself as, like, Jimbo. Jimbo? Yeah, if you're like, hey, my name is Jimbo. Like, I know people call me Tony. I don't know. I, nobody ever started calling me Tony until university, and then everyone started calling me it. Yeah. And I've never... I respond to it, but I never <laughs> call myself that. Like you, even like people will be like, like sometimes I'll reach out to the podcast, right? And I like to sign if, if they're talking to both of us. I like to like say that it's me, so they know who which one of us they're talking to. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, "Hey, Tony and Jamie, blah blah blah. Nice to hear disabled people have voices or whatever, and then, <laughs> or whatever." <laughs> <laughs> and then. I'll be like, oh, thanks. That's cool. I do have a voice. And then I'll be like, Tony, just because like that's what they called me. So I feel like I have to like acknowledge because it would be, it would almost be rude if they're like, hey, Tony. And then I signed it, Anthony, because it feels like I'm like correcting them. So my first name is Patrick. And the only time I ever hear my first name is when a doctor reads it off of a sheet yeah. or like, some kind of, or like a proctor at an exam is like, excuse me, are you Patrick? And then they give me a test that I stress about. Yeah. So I always associate my real name with bureaucracy and bullshit. Mm. And it's not me. It's, it's like, it's an immediate tell that the person that is doesn't speaking to me you. doesn't know me. Yeah. And so the other interesting thing is that when they are really personable and they call me Patrick, I like some part of my brain is like, fuck you. You don't know me. Do you dislike the name Patrick? I kind of. I don't think of myself as a Patrick. Yeah. And sometimes people call me Pat and I'm like, Pat? Who is Pat? <laughs> Do you ever almost like forget that that's your name? Like, are you so invested in the Jamie life? Yeah, for sure. My name is Jamie. Yeah. My uncle, my uncle calls me James and I have a good relationship with him. and. I respect him a lot, so I aspire to be called James, but I've never actually requested it of people in my life. Really? I'll call you James if that's what you want. Well, I mean, but again, like, I think it's a name you probably have to earn. What? <laughs> like, you earned, you earned, you earned the coolness of Tony by virtue of your coolness. I don't even know what that means. People were like, they were like, he's a fucking Tony. What do you want me to say? You're Tony. <laughs> You're fucking T. What do you want from me? I mean, so, it's probably 64% of the reason you talk to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Because I share the same name as your favorite <laughs> fictional character. Imagine. 
It just infatuated with imagining. I believe it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I just infatuated with your name. Yeah, I feel like you just heard that there was an Anthony at Carlton, and you're like, I must meet him. Yeah, yeah, and then call him Tony. Imagine I came to you and was like, hey, Tony, how attached are you to McAuliffe? Like, what do you think about it? <laughs> how do you like the name Soprano? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool, right? I actually don't really like my last name at all. It's so hard to say, hard to spell. Shout out to all the other people with my last name out there <laughs> who like their last name. But I'm not like, I'm not going to change it. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, I think your name is cool. Thanks. And <laughs> my last name is kind of like boring, like Mendek. Yeah, but it's easy to say and like easy to remember, easy to spell. Nobody sees it and just goes like, like people be like, Anthony, m- m- Anthony, <laughs> Anthony, m- 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 yeah, Anthony, m- is there an Anthony here? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not like, really quite up. sure. Yeah, they just give others like I'll repeat the first name. <laughs> it's not like phonetically it is sort of rare for some reason. Yeah, it is rare. It's it's like a it's like an Italian Arabic name. Yeah, it like has Mick in it, but it's not Irish. No. Like McCormick or Well, Mc- I think there McGregor. is I think there is a very similar or maybe even spelled the same uh like Scottish last name. Yeah. So that gets confusing too, because it's either you're either from Malta or you're from like Scotland, and they're a little different. Scotland. Scotland. So, um, I guess my name sounds like a sexist Home Depot. <laughs> what? Mendek. Oh yeah. Come yeah. on down to Mendek. Decks for men. We got the woman gazebo and the Mendek. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the woman gazebo. <laughs> That's so dumb. <laughs> we got the chick ramp and the men deck. It's like, like like French and Spanish where they assign genders to words. Mm. You're, you're like le deck <laughs> yeah. instead of la deck. It's extra confusing because like in those languages, if you use the wrong gender toward the noun, like do people actually get confused? They're like, no, I don't think so. They're like, that noun isn't a man. The table gets offended when you call it the table versus la. Yeah, because like yeah. I, I fully identify as a woman table, and now you're misgendering me. Mm, I this is a dicey, a dicey subject. You think we're gonna offend some tables? Imagine <laughs> <laughs> the table community comes after us. Are they going to get rid of that? They must be. Like, that must be a thing to get rid of. Law and law. And then they'll just come up with some neutral uh, article to call them, right? I suppose so. I I don't know if the gendering of things actually has, like, more, like, linguistic applications. Like, would you lose meaning if you took gender out of it? You know, like, would you hamper your ability to articulate a thought? If that's Well, we don't do it in English. And we can still talk about tables. Maybe not as effectively as the French. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't I don't want this to become, like, allegorically transphobic or something. That's... <laughs> but... Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you, I feel like somebody would have to draw a lot of parallels and make a lot of stretches to turn this conversation into 
a reflection of our political views. Mm, maybe. Or maybe they wouldn't, but that's neither here nor there. People can assume our political views. Well, I'm just saying, like, the, probably the gendering of nouns is a linguistic like device that is beyond our understanding. So, like, a French person, when they're forced to neuter their nouns or whatever. Neuter is such a <laughs> perfect word in this case. <laughs> it's not the table, neuter it. Table. table. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I don't know if this is a landmine area that we're standing in. All right, let's let's pivot. What's uh what's going on with your shirt? I like your shirt. Oh, I got a shirt from my friend's wife, like as a joke, because we one day we played cards against humanity. Oh, remember that game was all the rage? Yeah, I do remember. That was, like you couldn't go to a house party without it. Uh, yeah, like yeah. Basically every drink you took was as a result of some cards against humanity rule. Yeah, but uh, so those games are fun, but it's like anyway, continue. It says, Oh, you know what it was? No, this you know, Jackbox or whatever, right? Can can, like maybe we should like describe the shirt? So, here's what I can see based on like the cropped video image I'm seeing a bright blue, cripple threat blue officially. Yeah, uh, it is cripple threat blue with the handicap logo, uh huh, right on Jamie's. Buff breast. Excuse me, don't call it buff. What would you like me to call it? Just chest. <laughs> okay. Low chest. <laughs> um, and there is like the handicap symbol of yeah. uh, like a, a, a very white man in a very white wheelchair. I mean, it's a white icon. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not making this race racial. Yeah, like the hash code describing is describing the color of it. The the hash code is pound sign six Fs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, the T-shirt hashtag is zero 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 FF. Yeah. And the man is holding his hand up, throwing clip signs in the air. It looks like. It's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So somebody drew this like as as part of a prompt for that like uh, draw it or whatever it was that one mini drawful? game drawful. Yeah, yeah of yeah. Jackbox. They like drew it and then Great. they saved the image and then they made a T-shirt out of it. So I wore it today. That's a because, song. Did they like? That's how good it was when they drew it on their screen. I guess. Yes. Yeah, just I suppose she's very talented. Yeah. That's really impressive. Hmm. So, but I've never worn this in public because I don't want to look like a mascot for a parking space. Right. That's that's the thing. When I saw you wear it, I was like, oh, I didn't picture you as that guy. And what I meant by that was like, like the guy who turns his own disability into his identity. Oh, you know shit. I mean? Oh, that's a profound accusation, Tony. No, no, I'm not saying that that's what you're doing. <laughs> but I'm saying... That there are that's what it that looks like, that, feels like, and sounds and it like. It feels like this is a gateway drug to them. Oh, yeah. Once you wear this shirt, like you're going full on into yeah. like, like disability this, spokesperson. You have to start advocating. Yeah. It, like just by proxy of it. Mm-hmm. Like that becomes, there's probably like a tattoo somewhere of the parking symbol somewhere on your body. What's the name of that guy that like was Andrew the spokesperson? <laughs> no, that guy who's the spokesperson for the slap chop. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, and he's like, you can... What a weirdo. Yeah, you can chop anything in this device. Onions don't matter. Carrots, chop, chop. Tomatoes, maybe that's a little messy. Everything else... (laughs) Yeah. Wait, where did that come from? I don't know, but I just like... I, like it feels like you're in the middle of uh, calling me an infomercial uh, gu- guru. Oh, I see what you're saying. Person. Ramps, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Elevators, I love them. <laughs> yeah, my friend's got one in his house. Not a problem. Not a problem. Grab bars, go fuck yourself. We don't sell those grab bars. No, actually, when I was at the cottage that my brother built, yeah, he had. He special ordered because he's like, he knows me. He knows the deal. He knows that accessibility can be sexy. He knows I like grab bars. And yeah, grab bars are inherently weird and gross and institutional. Everybody Because they're just like these bright chrome, shiny bars that look, basically they might as well say, disabled people live here, you know? Yeah, they, they take your like, your stylized, um, thoughtful, <clears throat> clean, and sleek bathroom living space and turn it into like <clears throat> like a prison shower. <laughs> yeah. And, but he was trying to avoid that. So he special ordered matte black powder coated grab bars. Dang, did and, they look like they were like, designed by Apple or something? It was so sick because the, the bathrooms were like black tile. Uh-huh. And I love a black bathroom, I've realized. Excuse me? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. It's just, for me, I like dark. I like my bedrooms to be dark because I don't <laughs> okay. have a thought process. Okay, go ahead. Because I like sleeping in my okay. bedroom. So you appreciate the absence of light? Yeah. So if there are white walls then it's just inherently brighter and I like a dark place to sleep. So my bedroom is like a dark, dark color. And then I realized when I wake up in the morning, I like to, I like a slow transition to brightness. So mm-hmm. my first step in, in the morning is to go to the bathroom. So I like I, my bathroom is a slightly lighter version of my bedroom. And then eventually I transition to my light gray apartment. <laughs> You specifically painted your apartment in order to be able to cope with your morning routine? To wake up in the morning. (laughs) That's so goofy. But then I realized that black bathrooms are a thing, and they're sleek as fuck. I don't know why you find that so funny. I don't know why I find it either. I've never heard of a bathroom being referred to as strictly by its color. Yeah, like... (laughs) I heard yellow bathrooms are really special. and uh, Yeah, black bathrooms are pretty cool, but you ever seen a blue bathroom? <laughs> what color is your bedroom? You haven't taken a shit until you've been in a blue bathroom. It's like, <laughs> what? Tell me the hashtag of your bathroom color. My bathroom is literally sky blue. but my Okay, my- that's, that's chill. It's like calm. Yeah, but I don't want to get too deep into this conversation because then you're going to ask me for further details about my bathroom sure and get me trapped in my fucking vortex of uh, unnecessary story details. We know each other so well. <laughs> but yeah, the bathroom is sky blue on only half of the bathroom because it's actually only half renovated 
and I think I've already told this story. My dad at- attempted to pull out the wallpaper and paint the bathroom when my mom was away visiting me in Ottawa. And then he was un- unable to finish the renovation. And then she came home and discovered what he had done without her permission. Oh. And then so she put a halt on all further projects in the bathroom. And now it's just a gross, unfinished space. He probably knew she was going to deny it. And that's why he was hoping to get it done before she got back. Yeah, which is very strange for my dad. Normally, they're both on the same page about things. No, my dad does that too sometimes. He'd be like, all right, well, your mom's out. I'm going to go out. I'm going to, like, I don't have an example, but he would <laughs> like make some alteration to our house or something and be like, because I don't think she would want me to do it, but she's going to like it. And then she'll go out, he'll do something. And then she'll come back and be like, oh, you changed it. Oh, yeah, that's good. Like, he knew that she would never have gone for it in the first place. Yeah, it's really odd. It's weird when when couples get so close that they almost know each other better than they know themselves. Because, mm. like, my dad wouldn't do that ever if he thought she actually, my mom, wouldn't actually like it. Well, like, but he would never he do it knows. if he knew for Oh, okay. He would never do something that he knows would offend or hurt her yeah of course but he knows that it's going to be enough to like like that she wouldn't want it in the first place but Uh, then once it gets done she's going to be happy it was done yeah so he just does it and then she comes home and it's done and she's like oh yeah this is good like my dad is an immaculate uh woodworker he does he's very detail oriented and he's very very focused. So when he says, like in the summertime, like I'm gonna build an extension to the gazebo, Mr. Joe and Mo, he like goes and he does it and he does a wonderful job. But if if it's ever have if it ever has anything to do with aesthetics, he always chooses the worst possible colors, totally. the worst color combinations. Like it is atrocious. He built a tandem bike based on a schematic that he found online that he thought was rather reliable. Like the the steps it takes to go, I want to build a bike. Wait, mm-hmm. no, I want it to be a tandem bike. I'm going to build a tandem bike. I'm going to find the plans and then yeah. execute that. That's amazing. It's not one of those tandem bikes where it's like, you know, like two narrow bike seats, like on a, a narrow plane. It's like, it's one of those ones where it like has a cab and you like pedal it like the Flintstones. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, like a side by side. Yeah, sorry. I guess so. I guess it's not tandem. Is it side by side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's still tandem. Tandem just means two. Yeah. Okay. So his idea was that he wanted to build something for him, him and my mom to be able to venture down to the beer store or like to get something at, to get something at Blockbuster or something. That's like, so adorable. <laughs> yeah. So he had like really good intentions, and it was the summertime, and of course my mom's like, "Yeah, do whatever the fuck you want. It's fine." But then like he painted it. Like mustard yellow, bright, <laughs> bright, bright yellow. And she's like, I'm not going out on that thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just it just looks off, like real like really awful. So did he repaint it or they just never used it? No, it just got retired. It just sits in the he didn't backyard. Repaint it? No, he didn't. It just it just sits in the backyard <laughs> under a tarp. Because I think he tried to ride it by himself because she wouldn't go with him. <laughs> and it broke. <laughs> and it was a bicycle built for two. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad that now they think about it. That's so sad. 
because your dad put in so much work and forethought and like preparation and like hard labor. Yeah. And then your mom is like, it's yellow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She did the same thing with the bathroom. It's sky blue. No further construction. Good <laughs> yeah, luck, Jamie. Stop. Bye. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of the hex code. Yeah. I'm not. Sorry, I'm not painting a very favorable picture of my mom right now, but it's well, your the- dad didn't paint a very favorable bike. <laughs> Bazinga there, Mr. Tony. <laughs> You're a little hot on the mic and in person. Oh, thanks, dude. You're clipping a tiny bit. <laughs> the whole microphone just falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> Is this better? Yeah. Okay, good. Perfect. How's your day? Bazinga there, Mr. This is Mr. the first time we've ever... <laughs> we've ever this is the first time we've ever recorded on a friday i think it is the first time we ever recorded on a friday it feels good to know that i have nothing going on tomorrow yeah also this is the most productive friday i've ever had really (laughs) yeah i do dick all on friday what did you do well like i just usually in the evening like i just do nothing oh you mean like friday evening yeah i just i don't even let thoughts pass through my brain same Friday evening. It's just like my work day ends. I maybe squeeze out a dinner. <laughs> I thought you were then... going to say it. I thought, yeah. I thought you were going to. Okay, <laughs> never mind. I'm not going to go there. Don't go there. <laughs> okay. We can't transition from your dad making a beautiful gesture of a tandem bike for your mom to that. <laughs> okay, go um, on about squeezing it out. I squeeze it. Squeeze one out real quick. Yeah. And yeah. then I eat it. Mm. <laughs> oh, gross. And, and then afterwards, yeah, my mind just shuts off. And I just like play video games or watch movies or like decompress for the rest of the night. So this is a strange one because I feel like I'm, I'm in like weekend mode instead of work week mode. So I'm kind of into it. Mm, yeah. I took a, a personal day on on Thursday because I had some appointments throughout the day and I just didn't really want to also be thinking about work throughout the whole day. But yeah. then it, it meant that I got a couple hours of extra sleep in the morning. And um A couple. Yeah. So I so the night before I stayed up a little bit later with my guy friends and we watched Hot Shots Hot Shots Part Duh. Hot Shots? <laughs> You just said hot shards? I accidentally said hot shards, yeah. You squeezed one out? Yeah, we took a couple of hot shards. It's a pretty cool bro activity for sure. Yep. What did you watch? Hot shots? Yeah, it's a parody series that okay. from the late 80s, early 90s. And like, there's a lot of really antiquated, stupid, like racist nonsense in it. But there's like, it's also a... a a type of humor that is kind of lost nowadays. And I'm not talking about <laughs> like race. I just mean like. <laughs> there's not enough racist humor anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, but we there's really... like, a there's a childish goofiness to it. That isn't like a gross out sex comedy nonsense. And it's not like specifically stupid. Yeah. It's like visual gags that involve like a little bit of wit and just like playing against your expectations. And there's like a, when the jokes aren't racist, there's an innocence to to a majority of them. So I'm not endorsing the movie, but I am saying that I wish, like... I, I totally agree with that. Like, there is sort of this shift in humor where 
it almost feels like people think you have to, or maybe they do, maybe I'm just wrong the way I think, but so yeah. many people think that it's important to like be smart with your humor instead of just have a good time for a laugh, which is yeah, like, like, I'm not even necessarily talking about like, uh, shitting on things. <laughs> I think more about like, like jokes that, that, uh, older and younger audience can laugh at alike, like a kind of fundamental silliness that like tickles your funny bone. Right. Or it's just pure, innocent, goofy. Yeah, like there's a scene where in Hot Shots part de, I can't believe I'm saying this on our fucking Can podcast. You, you said Hot Shards, right? Again? Hot Shards. Yeah, Hot yeah. Shards part. Part deuce. Part deuce. <laughs> we have to stop. We need <laughs> one episode. No, we without... don't. We did that last episode. No. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, we're fine. Okay. One every 50 is a good ratio. Okay, so... Anyway, there's a there's a joke in Hot Shots Part De where Deuce. where uh, Charlie Sheen, like Rambo action hero, and his like cavalcade of yeah, I know, I know that it's like pre Coke Charlie Sheen, and right. it, it actually looks like he is went to the gym and lifted weights and looked after himself. Kind of makes his whole trajectory like sad, super sad, yeah, yeah. But anyway. He's like a, a specimen in this movie for the sake of the joke. But the, he's like on his way to some war-torn nation, like with like a bunch of other action heroes in a like a hangar plane or whatever. And, you know, there's like that scene where they all get ready with their parachutes to like jump out of the plane while like the camera's panning across like everyone, all the action heroes, and they're all putting their shit on and like harnessing up. And then it cuts to like just this random pedestrian businessman like holding on to uh, like what looks like a the, the strap on a public bus. And he, so he just looks like he's like just a random pedestrian taking public transportation in the middle of all these action heroes. And it's so stupid, but it's such a like <laughs> I just wasn't expecting it. Yeah. And I just like died laughing for like half a minute. There is something really, I learned at a young age because I grew up in a very religious family. Yeah. So I learned that, you know, you couldn't take shortcuts to humor always um, because I, I, I'd get in trouble for like dropping a swear word into a joke for an easy laugh or something. Yeah. So I had to like find other ways of making my family and friends laugh. Mm -hmm. And I was really inspired by some of my family members are super funny, but they're still also like very religious. And so their humor is as clean as it can get, but still makes me die laughing. And yeah. I always respected that because it felt like your brain has to kick into a different gear to get there. Whereas like I make a lot, as you know, super childish jokes that I'll admit like make me laugh and often make other people laugh. But I, I know that a lot of it is cheap. You know what I mean? Whereas, well, like, these <laughs> jokes inspire me in a way because it's like, you have to... It's a challenge to make a purely clean but still hilarious joke. Is it like, you're, you're tasked with making something funny with an array of constraints. Like, yeah. there are 
there are rules to comedy and those rules are defined by the current climate by your audience aka and so you have to learn how to arrive at the punchline like with certain limitations on where you can go and what you can do yeah. and if you are able to pull that off it is an achievement making my dad laugh is still such an accomplishment today because mm-hmm. they're still very religious and so when they come up i still have the instinct in me that wants to crack jokes and yeah. make everyone laugh but i can't use the same lanes that i use with like my friends right i mean there's a lot of that going on in comedy today because you you'll find a lot of comics or big names will complain like oh i can't make the jokes i used to be able to make 10 or 15 years ago or even five years ago yeah and but basically what that means is yeah well not necessarily evolve like you can still arrive at the at the observations or the punchlines that you need to make but but you're going to have to think a little bit harder about how to get there and you're going to have to factor in you know whether or not a, like a certain approach to a joke is going to hurt people along the way because if something is funny it is a truth and if it and and truths, I don't know if that's the case I think I think most jokes speak to some kind of fundamental truth because it's always I don't know. It's all, sometimes I think things are just funny because they're like outrageous because it surprises you maybe yeah like it's I think it's so subjective what is funny it would be like trying to say why something tastes good <laughs> yeah that's true that is true but i know what you're saying like a lot of a lot of the times when you're laughing you are laughing at like like the cosmic joke like yeah. the the truth that we all share right yeah and having more constraints on how you can deliver a joke it will just make you a better humorist or a better comedian or whatever sure. Well, it at least makes you think differently. For sure. Like, I think, like, this sort of applies to every field ever. Like, you think, like, filmmaking and game design and stuff, there's all kinds of limitations on the extent of your creativity or the number of polygons you can use or, like, time and resources. And those constraints are problems that you need to operate within. And so do that and you'll succeed. At the same time, though, on the flip side, I do love, I don't know, there's something in me that likes to laugh at things because I know someone isn't supposed to say that thing. Like, there is that. Like, I do laugh a lot at jokes where it's just like, I can't believe he just said that. That's outrageous. That's like the surprise element. Yeah. But again, like things that are taboo are not necessarily unfunny. And no. like a lot of times jokes like that are meant to pose the question, why is this taboo? I, I think like that in and of itself is a valid branch of comedy. It just depends like whether you are, you know, actively hurting someone in the creation or delivery of said joke. I don't know if you're ready to transition, but this would be a sweet segue into the movie we watched. Would it really? Okay, fine. We don't have to. Is there more you want to talk about? <laughs> uh, I just, I was going to say, because we normally ask what we've done this week. And, and I, I had a first uh, this week in my life. Oh. I, I had some coworkers over for lunch today. 
Oh, nice. That's yeah, amazing. It, yeah, it was fucking awesome. I that, that there's a uh, you hosted co- them. Yeah, I did. I did. There's a coworker did friend. Cook? I I didn't cook. No. Did uh, your mom cook? My mom baked. Nice. And <laughs> she made she made a cheesecake. Amazing. Yeah, and so it was me and three of my coworkers who I'm fairly close with. As in, I talk to them on a daily basis, and yeah. one or two I play video games with a couple times a week. And uh, you know, we always talk like we talk a lot. And so it was nice to finally like have them in my house and be in, yeah. be in person with them. And like so, you know, I got to show off. I got to show off my bar top arcade, my embarrassing nine hundred dollar bar top <laughs> arcade. Yeah, finally, like a market that will appreciate it. Exactly. An audience that will look at it and be impressed rather than concerned for my well-being. <laughs> yeah. So that was fucking nice. And, you know, we sat and had and had uh, burgers and and cheesecake. Incidentally, the cheesecake was called Sex in a Pan. And no, that is not my mom's name for the recipe. That is formally the recipe as of, as of food.com. So you don't need yeah, to make that. I... Somehow, my mom, maybe the same mom, she always made sex in a pan. Does she giggle whenever she says she's going to make it? I honestly think that she didn't even make the same thing every time she said she was making it. (laughs) I think she just enjoyed saying, we're going to have sex in a pan. (laughs) Because like I said, they're super conservative Christians. And to be able to like have an excuse while God is watching to be able to say sex in a pan and for it to be like colloquially appropriate. Yeah. She loved it. Like I'm, she would be like, we're having sex in a pan. And then like the whole house would, it was honestly grown worthy. But I remember it being absolutely delicious. It's your mom's one opportunity to say the word sex without feeling guilty afterwards. Yeah, like I honestly think she, like every time she had one of her children, she'd be like, oh, we just had sex in a pan. Like I think that it was just, she equated anything good with sex in a pan. I really wasn't expecting you to have a parallel anecdote to my cheesecake story. Yeah, usually we're very disparate on dessert. (laughs) Yeah, we really are. (laughs) But I will say it's not so good that like people can get away with the title. Like I still don't understand you and your family's obsession with sugar to the point where you can say it's sex in a pan. Uh That's outrageous. But it's cool that you and your guy friends had sex in a pan today. You act like sugar is cigarettes and like. I think it might be. Okay, um, and actually there are people who would agree with you who are also sane, so it's not like you're crazy. I guess, I, I guess I'll just leave it alone. I think sugar is like probably pretty bad for you. I'm not saying that I avoid it very well. I love it. I try to avoid it, but it's everywhere. I don't think you love it. I, I do love it. Like every time I have it, I, I'm like, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, yeah, I know what's happening. This is dangerously good. You know um, I mean? Yeah, that's how I feel about alcohol. Right. Yeah. I love being drunk. It's not good. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I feel about sugar. I'm like, this is delicious. I feel electricity in my brain, but I also know it's not good for me. Mm, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I get it. And I also crash right after. Like, it's not worth it. It's the same. It's it's like the equivalent of a hangover. Like, every time I have sugar, like a decent amount of sugar, afterwards, I'm just like, I just feel gross. I'm like, why did I do that? I'm filled with regret. <laughs> you get like some kind of clinical depression every Halloween as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a bowl of candy that's been in my living room since before Halloween that I just give to people when they come and like give to the attendants to bribe them to help me pee. It's like dog treats for attendants. <laughs> oh, you were timely here. You get an arrow bar. Oh, you answered the phone. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, you trim my beard ever so nicely here. Have a have two. Have an eat more. Yeah. Um, and I've I, I honestly proudly say I've haven't had one of the treats. <laughs> they come late and you're like, eat the black licorice. <laughs> eat it. It'd be funny if like one day you had like a particularly delicious chocolate almond or like a Ferrero Rocher. And oh, then you those are so good. Yeah, and then you texted me like a formal apology. I had creme brulee for the first time a few weeks ago, maybe Uh a bit longer, but it was really good. And it was so good that I I knew I needed to pace myself. So I just had a little bit after dinner every day for like five days. And then I I got rid of it because I was like, I can't do this. This is not good. I, I can feel the devil inside me. Yeah, you're like, it's like sitting there with a bottle of hard liquor in a shot glass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, I had creme brulee, but I prefer creme poulet. <laughs> yeah, I, I love cream chicken. <laughs> I'm, I'm overtired and I'm in such a stupid mood. It's those hot shards. <laughs> Must be. Do we have to talk about the movie now? We don't have to. I, is there anything else you wanted to bring up? That's about it. It, it. Oh, oh yeah. You had sex in a pan with your friends. Yeah, with my friends. Actually, that's what that was the joke that I made at the end of it, which I was pretty proud of. I was like, I was like, at the end of it, I was like, hey Gage, when you get back to the office, make sure you tell your boss that you had sex in a pan with three other dudes. <laughs> yeah, my parents loved the sex in a pan jokes because it was like somehow again like okay for my parents to say sex and god is watching and they could just make all these what that's just the name of the dessert yeah i didn't sin yeah they also <laughs> like sex on the beach it's yeah. just a drink I, i'm just drinking it what why why are you being okay that's i guess it's kind of like cute in a way it's cute yeah it's cute because i i truly believe i just i know everyone doesn't want to think about their parents having sex but, like, I genuinely think my parents are, like, the most innocent people in that regard. Fair enough. Like, I've had them be like, what does it tell them? Yeah, you always tell me that story about yeah, how you, uh, you pretended to Google it. And then you're like, oh, I was it's, like, a t- it's a city in Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Because <laughs> you didn't lie to her. Shout out to all the people who live in Dildo. <laughs> and she's like, what is with all these young women and like obsessed with that that town in Newfoundland? Yeah, I remember, maybe we'll have to cut this, but I remember we were watching Dr. Oz and Dr. Oz made a mention of anal sex. Oh, God. And my mom was like, what's that? 
what the fuck is Dr. Oz doing talking about that shit on primetime television? I know. What a fuck. What a ridiculous show. And so he, he like said something about anal sex. And I was like, what's <laughs> anal sex? And I was like, I'll let you do the mouth. That's and what you said like, to your mother? Yeah. I was like, I'll let you. I'm sure you can connect the dots. <laughs> and she was like, people don't do that. And I was just like, okay. Okay. My God. She's like, it's not called butt sex in the pan. <laughs> All right, we're definitely going to cut that. There's anal sex on the beach. <laughs> this whole bit got to go. It really does. Maybe we'll keep it. <laughs> it's the Friday podcast. Yeah. All right, so we watched a movie called I Am Sam, all lowercase. So this is another recommendation we got from a fan. What did, what did they say when they recommended it? Did they say they liked it? They told me that it was cry-worthy. Oh, yeah, it is a weepy, for sure. It's a weepy movie. Oh, yeah, that's my main criticism of it. Really? Okay. Yeah. I think we should go over the plot. Okay, so there's a man with a nondescript developmental illness, played by Sean Penn. Sam, I am. He has autistic tendencies. Yeah, and he has the intellectual capacity of a seven-year-old. Which debatable, uh, but that's what they say. Yeah, that's that's what the movie says. And then so Sam uh works retail at Starbucks and the movie actually opens inside of a fucking Starbucks and we see like a standard work day of Sam. And um, you know, he's serving coffee and very jovial and very kind. He's like a puppy in his innocence and approachability and likability. And um, we find out that, oh, my God, Sam is a father. And you're thinking, how the fuck could he be a father? What's what's going on? What happened? He lives on his own in an apartment. And apparently there was some homeless woman who, in a bid to get a place to stay, had sex with him. And then that sex produced a baby, which can sometimes occur. And then uh, Sam decides to keep the baby and the homeless woman runs away for some reason. So the movie is about this man having to raise a daughter and the social services that don't think that he should be a father or that, you know, he should be the exclusive guardian of his daughter. And so it's the legal battle for Sam to keep his child and to, to assert his fitness as a parent. And he gets a high paid, like, you know, a sharp suited Shoulder padded Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer, who is incredible. I love Michelle Pfeiffer so much. I have such a weakness yeah, for she's Michelle so good Pfeiffer. In this movie. Yeah, she's like super. All the women in this movie are fantastic. Yeah, they 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 are like. There's uh, what's her name? Uh, Vice. What's her first name? Vice. Vice. Oh, Diane. Diane Vice. Diane. Yeah. And. Uh, hors d'oeuvres. What's her name? Laura Dern. Laura Dern, yeah. I love Laura Dern, and she's very good in this movie. Very good. Also, Dakota Fanning is the kid. She's so good in this movie. Dakota Fanning is like a, a Disney character come to life in this fucking movie. She makes... What's the, what's the dude from Home Alone? Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, she makes Macaulay Culkin look stupid. <laughs> Like, she's so precocious. 
Yeah. Like well, that, but not only like is the role written for her to be precocious, yeah. but you can tell just by the way she's acting that she's like miles ahead. Apparently she was seven years old when this movie was made. And she that's started, incredible. I, it is ridiculous how much personality this little girl has. And it's like, like, you know, Macaulay Culkin, it's kind of like bratty and annoying, especially in subsequent sequels. But in this movie, it's like sort of palatable. Oh, I loved her in this movie. She's the, she's like the, the whole heart of this movie. Yeah. What do you think of Sean Penn in this movie? Not a fan. You're not a fan. See, the thing for me is that... Let me, let me say why, though. Okay, okay. I don't want to just say not a fan. That doesn't seem fair. I'm not a fan because, first of all, it's always strange. We've talked about it when someone is trying this hard to play a role that just doesn't seem to fit. And it really felt to me like, like I was always distracted by his acting more so than believing it. Like I just kept seeing Sean Penn trying to play a person with a developmental disability. And like, to me, it it wasn't convincing. Well, this boils down to that age-old argument that we had over and over and over again about the the value of the authenticity of the performance of a disability from a non-disabled person. Absolutely. And like, you know, like if an actor does actually reproduce the affectations and the mannerisms and the speech patterns of a intellectual disability or cerebral palsy or something, then is that like groundbreaking, incredible, amazing, awesome, whatever, whatever. I think there's always a kind of mesmerization with an actor's ability to disappear into a character. It's just really unfortunate when a character's defining traits are superficial things or quote-unquote problematic things things well i also just didn't feel maybe because i've known sean penn and i have seen him and i see his face so it's hard to suspend my disbelief but i never felt like i was convinced by his portrayal it never i was always the, the fourth wall was broken for the whole movie for me yeah there's also like i think a kind of dissonance between this character that Penn is playing and also if you have any knowledge of Penn's private life and his like history of being a, a dickhead, uh, just in his conduct, not necessarily in his politics or whatever. Yeah, he seems terrible. He's like, he seems like the kind of actor where it's like, where there's smoke, there's fire, you know, like a history of tumultuous relationships, like like violent outbursts toward crew members on movie sets and stuff like that. And I tend to try to avoid like incorporating those details into my assessment of a performance. It's just like, I don't know, he's, he's playing like a teddy bear in this movie. Like he's playing, he's like, he's a cat video of a character. The one thing that I will say about the performance of his is that he, he doesn't appear to be overacting, but then also he, um, he has good chemistry with all his co-stars, in particular Dakota Fanning. Like it does seem yeah, like Yeah, but I think Dakota Fanning is leading that. Oh well, yeah. And I mean her character is, is supposed to lead Sam, so yeah. it, it makes sense that that's the impression that comes across. 
But the pernicious thing about this movie, excuse me for burping, is that it works on an emotional level. Yeah, it does. The whole time I was watching it, yeah, I knew that it was like really, really trying to manipulate me into yeah. feeling things. Like even the song choices they were using were like lyrically on the nose. Yeah. And the the score was just trying to shove it down your throat. The acting was obviously like, you know, trying to push you in a direction. And it, like everything was really trying to be manipulative. Yeah. And so I was really resistant to letting it manipulate me, but yeah. it still got me. Yeah, I know. It's like it's kind of the experience of watching uh watching that fucking movie with Amelia Clark and Nicholas Hoult. Yeah. One of that fucking euthanasia beauty and the beast bullshit. I was trying to figure out why it is that because I know when I'm watching a Disney movie. They're trying uh-huh. to manipulate my emotions and I buy in from the beginning and I let it take me on that journey. And for this uh-huh. movie, I was so resistant to letting it bring me there. Well, that's because the core premise of the movie is flawed. That's it? You think it's just that? I think it's I think because the movie is arguing that love is all you need. And just by virtue of... of- but I usually, I, I usually buy into that. I'll watch a, I'll watch a really bad premise. Um, and I'll usually buy in to like rom-com premises all the time. Mm-hmm. And those premises aren't much more than love is all you need. Yeah. It's just like, this is like, you know, that joke from Tropic Thunder, Robert Downey Jr. says like, you never play a character who's intellectually disabled up to a certain point. Yeah. If you, if you want to win an Oscar, like that's a pretty touchy or like a, salacious comment especially nowadays (laughs) that like that's obviously not the language that he uses but it's basically um a melodramatic performance that is sort of and there's sort of a subconscious or conscious awareness in the audience that he's really vying for an award for this and that will never not be gross yeah they thought it would be his rain man yeah but rain man didn't offend me the way this movie did why I don't know. Probably because the premise in Rain Man feels a lot more grounded. Yeah, it's not focused on let's see what this guy can do with his acting. It's it's like a little bit more character driven. Rain Man feels like it was derived. I think there's I think this movie is character driven too, which is why it like succeeds in elicit, in in eliciting certain strong emotions at certain times. Not saying it's good. No, it, I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. I still ended up crying and I didn't want to because they didn't <laughs> want to let it bring me there. Well, this movie has two Titan criers, by the way. Laura Dern and Michelle Pfeiffer are fucking phenomenal when they let the waterworks fly. Like they they are in their fucking wheelhouse and you just know that they were waiting the whole time this movie was made to have their scene where they get to fucking unleash Niagara. And how often have we seen Diane Weiss now in this podcast? Is it like the fucking third, like third? or fourth time? Yeah. Yeah, she is She's awesome. She's in all the Wheeling movies. I think there's about three that she was in so far. Yeah. Which like of 50 or something is quite high. Anyway, what was the last thing I was saying about the movie? You're talking about how the characters were good. Um, they were believable. Oh, the water. You're comparing it to Rain Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Rain Man, though. Like there's like a 
there's a pretty grounded, realistic kind of like fraternal dynamic there between Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. And it does kind of feel like it could have been derived from a real life. When did Rain Man come out? 1989. Okay. So way before this movie. Well, 12 years. Yeah, that feels like way. 12 years ago from now was 2009, which literally feels like yesterday. That feels like way. Really? It feels like way for you? Yeah. Wow. That's a third of my life. I remember 2009 like it was fucking yesterday. Yeah, I don't have that gift. Yeah, I was living in Leeds House with John McRae. I was with I was in second year university. I was taking uh <laughs> deterministic and non-deterministic atomic. I believe you. Comp two three oh five or some bullshit with uh, Mikhail Smid. What temperature was it? Uh thirty-two. That's warm. <laughs> what were you wearing? Uh nothing. Oh, that's hot. Was it yeah. a Wednesday? Nope. It was a Friday. Dang. You don't usually do much on Fridays. <laughs> That's true. I was I was more adventurous in my younger years. Uh-huh. Uh What color were the walls in Wade's house? Uh, they were blue. They were cobalt yeah, they blue. They were blue. It was like a azure blue. Yeah. And I had a huge bed. I could like roll three times before I thought I was going to hit the wall. Dang. Well, you were also smaller back then. I'm not fat. It's not what I ever saying. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, sorry. Uh, back to the movie. What, what was it? Oh, this fucking Rain Man movie. came out in 89. Yeah, yeah. And they had a fraternal relationship, with which helps to sell the characters because you never feel like you're looking at like a zoo animal or something. No, and it doesn't really feel like the movie is trying to tug at your heartstrings or give you the same feeling you get when you see a litter of puppies. Right. Because that's like, I am Sam is literally just the cinematic equivalent of a litter of puppies, like uh, yeah. next to a litter of kittens. Yeah. But it works. Like I'll watch a, a video of a cat playing and I'm like, that's so cute. I know. Even though I know what it's doing. Yeah. And I don't want to let it do it to me because I don't, want to admit that I can be that easily manipulated. Yeah. So first of all, the whole the whole idea that Sean Penn's character randomly stumbled upon a homeless lady and then somehow had like intercourse with her and then Yeah, I I would watch that movie honestly. Like well, if it started there, maybe it would have been more of a believable premise. Yeah. But it, it just seems to me that like like a, a sex worker on the street probably wouldn't go through with a pregnancy. If it were with a disabled person. What's your point? Like the premise, like he would, there's just no situation in which he would but end up But it wasn't with, a sex worker. Okay. Well, they didn't, I mean, I guess they, they didn't expressly say that, but I just assumed. Oh no, I think they, I, my assumption at least was just a woman on the street was homeless looking for a warm bed to sleep in didn't know you existed with your huge bed. So she found Sean Penn and was like, if I kiss you, will you let me sleep here? But that's the thing. Like there's no, Sean Penn's character is kind of like asexual. So they never really established that. I don't he's think like, that's true. Cause he like almost makes out with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, he does, but they, I think they took that out of the script or they cut the scene where him and Michelle Pfeiffer make hanky panky. Yeah. 
I don't know if they had that in initially. The, probably a good call to cut it out. I don't know. They sort of leave hints that it, it, it occurred. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. What I was trying to say is that whole idea seems flawed and they didn't bother to show it. I think because... Which whole idea? That he's sexual? No, that he had sex with a homeless lady and that she yeah. like carried through with the pregnancy and then she left him there with the kid. Like that whole thing. They definitely glossed over that whole part. Yeah, why couldn't he have sex with like a woman that he has movie night with every Wednesday? Or like, you know, why why does the the person who validates Sean Penn's sexuality have to be a homeless person who then runs away from him in fear? Because I think they had to I think part of the plot device was her running away. They wouldn't want him to have sex with one of his friends because then maybe it would have been harder to believe that she would have left. Yeah, fair enough. But then it then it's kind of like dismissive of like the intimate lives of like disabled people. Yeah. So that whole idea is pretty doubtful, dubious, whatever. And then the whole idea that he could raise this little girl for seven years without it ever making a blip on the radar. Blowing up in his face. Of yeah. social services. Mind you, this is like pre-internet era or like on the cusp of like web 2.0 or whatever. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of uh, eyes everywhere. So maybe that's a little bit more likely that he would fly under the radar. I think I think even still, like if you live in a small enough town, you can you can probably get away with it. Like you I've definitely seen people that are in my opinion seem to be on the outside like struggling to be parents. Like and, and but still like getting by. You know, like people there I've definitely seen especially growing up in foster care. And that's what this movie really did for me was it was because it was sort of anti like the whole premise of the movie is a, a child should be with their parents. Yeah. Right. Which I agree with. Maybe. But then again, my experience that wouldn't have worked out well for me. No. <laughs> like me thinking personally, if I was to have a kid, I would want all the fucking help in the world. Yeah, but would you want the help of someone else parenting your children? I don't know, but I like I would acknowledge at the outset that I can't do it on my own. On my own. Yeah. So is the movie arguing that the only reason that Sam doesn't see that is because he's intellectually disabled? No, because he at one point does say, "I want my daughter to have everything." Yeah, but not until the end of the movie when there's no more movie left. No, like halfway through when they're in court. Yeah, that's like two thirds, like three quarters of the way. I guess. But I think also like the premise of the movie is that he knows fundamentally that if he admits to any of that, then it's just going to make their case easier. He could lose her altogether. Yeah. But it's just like that whole thing, like, will Sam lose his child? I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> I was invested. I I was too. I cared about Dakota Fanning. Yeah. I fucking cared about Sean Penn for a little bit there, and I don't normally do that. Like, I could give a shit about Mystic River and whatever Jerry action movie he's making to try to look like uh, fucking Liam Neeson lately, or I don't really care about Sean Penn, but in this movie, like, he is very uh, something. Yeah, he definitely... Pulls on your heartstrings whether you want him to or not. 
Can you play that clip where it's like, why, daddy? <laughs> this is hilarious. Oh my god, it kills me. <laughs> daddy, why does the snowflake? Because snow, because snowflakes. <laughs> daddy, what is mustard made of? Because it's, ca- it's, yeah, it's yellow ketchup. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Sometimes they're poor because their head is shiny and they don't have hair on it. So their head is just more of their face. Daddy, are ladybugs only girls, or are there boys too? And if there are, what are they called? Yeah, the beetles. Daddy, where does the sky end? Why does the moon fall me home? Why is the sun orange? Where does the hour go in daylight savings? Daddy, do I look more like you or mommy? Daddy. So... This whole clip is the fucking tone of the movie. And they like the, the villains of the film are those people that question whether or not Sam needs help. And I think it's fairly obvious that he does. And I don't know, this clip didn't sell that for me. Because when I heard this clip, I was like, I can imagine myself giving these kinds of answers. Well, like, yeah. When, it, when a kid goes on the why, why, why train, yeah. It's it's literally until you question your own existence. Of course it is, yeah. Some things are and some things are not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I'm just saying that like, oh, what am I what the fuck am I trying to say? Like that scene is unbelievably cute. And like that's the whole movie, basically. Yeah. And so when when the scenes come along where someone is verbally accosting Sam or calling his competence into question, um, or when he's Responding to his close friends who are non-disabled with these like parallel allegories about things that the Beatles did throughout their career. Like in, in plenty of conversations, he's posed questions or ideas that seem to exceed his, ga- his grasp. And then all of a sudden he comes up with this parallel anecdote about the Beatles that perfectly suits the question that they are asking. I have a couple examples of that. Oh, you want me to play something? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> By the way, keep that in because it's funny. <laughs> I honestly thought you were going to say something. Do you think she'll ever come back? Paul McCartney lost his mother when he was little. And John Lennon lost his mother when he was little. And Annie says that sometimes God God picks just the special people. That's what Annie says. Daddy, did God mean for you to be like this? Was it an accident? Okay, what do what do you mean? I mean you're different. That conversation, um, Dakota asks Sam where her mother is, and he doesn't know how to tell her that she's gone. She's not coming back. So he tells her that two of his heroes grew up without mothers. And so it's like he's saying indirectly or like somehow with this weird uh, paradoxical wisdom that she'll be fine. The thing is, I don't even think it was like paradoxical wisdom. I think that this is just how he was thinking about it. Like, Right. It's, it's kind of like, so one could argue that the movie, like the, that this is a 
a strange sort of device. It's a recurring thing throughout the film and that it it's not very like authentic or it's not very well written because like it's these weird magical moments where Sam is suddenly more lucid than you would think he could be. But then at the same time, it's like, it's like that phenomenon where like you play music for people with dementia in an old folks home and suddenly they start dancing and they have like more, they have better access to their linguistic centers in their brain. They can speak more clearly and they, they kind of come alive intermittently. And it's like, you know, like when I, when I used to go visit my Baba in the nursing home, like in the couple of years before she died. And in order to break the cycle of her continuing to say the same things over and over again, we'd ask her how to prepare like cabbage and pierogies. And then from there, we could sort of continue to ask her questions until it became more of a full end to end conversation. So it's like kind of like an indirect. Cabbage and pierogies was like music to her ears. Yeah. Well, it's because she would remember step by step how to do it. And then she like she would use her like a full breadth of vocabulary. It was like she was present. But then, you know, she'd slip back into her round robin of phrases. But I mean, like you could argue that this is this is what the Beatles do for Sam. This is how he like digests harder to understand concepts or things that is that is difficult for him to speak to directly. Yeah, it's like his anchor for the world. Yeah. And I wonder like. Is that something like, does that have a basis in reality for people with his sorts of limitations? Or is it just like, like a kind of corny little recurring device the movie uses to elicit more emotion? I mean, I don't have a ton of experience. I have some, like we definitely did have foster kids across the spectrum. Not to say that he was necessarily autistic. They say that he has autistic tendencies at one point. Mm-hmm. But they never actually like give an actual diagnosis. But based on my limited experience, um, there is there are tools that people will often use to keep themselves grounded, and you can access those tools with them. So uh, it can be like a physical object sometimes, where like you hand them their favorite Rubik's cube, and then they calm down. Um, but sometimes it can be. Like you can talk about a person that you you they know and that they respect, and then that will help like bring them back to to reality, like back down to earth. Mm-hmm. Um. So I don't think it's I don't think it's unfounded that the Beatles might be his. It's like that thing in Inception where they spin uh, a top or whatever to you know what I mean. Like there is sort of that device, like an anchor. Mm-hmm. So there could be some reality to this, I guess. And like, you know, it it does like as a storytelling device, it kind of works. I I kept waiting for the next Beatles story and wondering if it was going to like be moving. You know what I mean? I learned a lot about the Beatles from this movie. <laughs> yeah. What One of your questions there in that first cute clip was like, hey, Dad, are there any male ladybugs? And he says, the Beatles. <laughs> That's so funny. Like, I kind of hate that I like so much of this goofy movie. That's how I felt, too. Like, when I saw the premise, I was like, okay, I'll buy in. Because it is an interesting thought experiment to wonder 
a like how much parenting is reliant on a person's like intellect or something like yeah based on whatever we've decided that means some intelligence quotient but also it made me think a lot about like the merits of a community to to raise a child rather Uh than an individual yeah Um, i was thinking a lot about that from my personal experience with foster care and you know how my perspective on that has changed over the years like at the beginning foster care was not an easy transition and the older i get the more i realize how much of it i can attribute to my like personal success Mm -hmm. Um, and so i respect the movie for trying to explore that and the like i said i definitely felt resistant to letting the movie emotionally manipulate me because it felt too transparent or something it it was so overt yeah and i didn't want it to be so i sort of like dug my heels in and and resisted but i guess because it was so overt and it just got like more and more overt eventually i had no choice but to dig in and the movie did did affect me more than i was ready for yeah because like i don't know it was still i was i was still like not fully sold on sean penn's performance or or at least maybe i'm just more so not fully sold on performances in this vein of course not especially when they are you know when the idea is that it will or should or inevitably will be rewarded. Yeah. Like he, this guy is getting paid millions of dollars yeah. to pretend he has a mental disability to win an Oscar. And if you or I did this right now on the podcast, we would be canceled immediately. If we did what? Like if we pretended to have the same disability that Sean Penn is pretending to have. Yeah, because one is a performance and the other is mockery. Like if I came in here being like, let me give my best impression of Sean Penn in this movie, would that be appropriate? It would depend. I was actually having a debate with a friend about this, whether or not it would be appropriate for me to do an impression of Sean of Sean Penn's impression of a disabled person. And I think it, I think it would be appropriate because it's not like we're not impersonating Penn's source material, but our impression would have to be like a commentary upon his performance. Yeah, I mean, like impressions in general, I guess, are sort of dicey depending on who's doing it and who they're doing it about. Yeah, but it like that's like that's a level of satire that doesn't really occur to me naturally, and it would take me forever to think about the best way to impersonate Sean Penn in this particular instance. Do you think Sean Penn had source material? He must have. I can only hope, right? Yeah, well, because it's a very detailed performance and there is a level of consistency that, you know, despite the the odd moments of Beatles lucidity, there's a consistency to his performance that is, like if it was anyone else, if he was just doing a character, it would be quite accomplished. 
Yeah. Like he's he's in it. Like he definitely fucking prepared for this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can see the effort that he put into it. It's just that when like such a high proportion of effort is is so fundamentally misguided, it's like you just end up feeling sorry for the actor. Do you think it was misguided? Yeah. Cause the premise of the movie is deeply flawed. Does that affect the performance? Well, it, it it affects our level of investment in the movie as a whole. Right. So like it works emotionally moment to moment, but by the end of the film, you you end up feeling like you need a shower or, or like it was sort of time not used well. I didn't regret watching the movie. I actually ended up watching parts of it again. Yeah. Again, because everyone is so likable and like the actors are making good decisions, but it's in service of crap. Well, when I was watching it again, I was really trying to reflect on why I like certain parts and why I dislike certain parts. Can I and offer also, my like, reasons why it works? Sure. Because the father-daughter relationship at its core is, like, I think very, very well done. Like, I feel like Penn and uh, Dakota Fanning worked pretty closely on set, and they were quite comfortable with one another. Yeah. Because there are scenes when Penn is reading a book to her, and they are both putting in their work you know like yeah he sells it one million percent and there are scenes when they're just like at a park on a swing or like the uh, toward the end of the film sam is refing one of her soccer games and he picks up dakota and does these like he starts sprinting full fucking speed with her like in his arms and it looks pretty fucking terrifying it, you know if i were that little girl but yet they like it, it look also is very organic. Like it does look like a, a moment of embrace between a father and a daughter. And like, I don't want to speak uh, in hyperbole about this movie, but when I say that those little moments connect, like they really, really do. There's a couple of scenes toward the end of the movie where Dakota attempts to escape her foster parents' home to walk over to her dad's place. And he has to take her back home to the foster parents and it's just a montage of them doing this over and over and it's like in any other movie it would be really cheesy but for some reason there's a that urgency of the two of them needing to be together like is present there was also the um well the the scene where they're reading together really got me but for some reason this is so oddly specific but i've always had this insane soft spot for Dr. People, Seuss <laughs> for Dr. Seuss because like when is the cat gonna come back yeah and it's so glad I'm so glad that Sam knows who he is Dr. Seuss is not the cat came back I thought that was Robert Munch no the cat in the hat oh yeah don't get me started on that I remember I have vivid vivid like visceral memories of reading the cat in the hat on the toilet um and there's a a, a scene like yesterday yeah and today and there's a scene in the book in the book the cat in the hat uh-huh by dr seuss <laughs> where not the mike myers movie the hard copy by dr seuss by dr seuss it's called the cat in the hat <laughs> There's a scene where um, the cat 
in the hat <laughs> is in a tub. What? How could that be? Cats are waterproof. And he was having a bath in his hat in the tub. And there was an umbrella over his head. I know this is so oddly specific. There was an umbrella over the cat's head. And the shower is raining down on the umbrella. And he's holding a piece of cake. Is this like and, what, what my stories feel like? And, yeah, and worse. <laughs> worse. <laughs> and I remember being like dreaming about if I was able-bodied, I would just sit in a bathtub with an umbrella and eat some cake. Like it was so visceral to me that that's all I wanted out of my life was the freedom to like sit in a bathtub and eat some cake. Dang. I mean, that does sound like like great. Would you settle for sex in a pan? It's not my favorite position. (laughs) Okay. But what I was going to say is I, I have this insane soft spot for like, like people who can't read. Whether it's like old people, <laughs> like when I was, I know. What? I know. When I was a kid, I used to like want so badly to teach old people that couldn't read how to read. Like if I found out that some person didn't know how to say a word, it, I made it my life's mission to, to like want to help that person. It's a really specific I, I'm sorry, did you live with a lot of illiterate older adults? Like, what What are you talking about? I don't know. It wasn't even that it happened a lot. It was just that when it happened, it cut right to, I don't know. There's like some vulnerability. Because you, like, you thought of like reading as an essential skill and the lack of it made the world inaccessible to a certain demographic of people. I've never fully figured out what it is, but it like really gets me every time. I'm and shocked you're a, not an English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, I don't care if kids can't read. Like, cause care. I know that they'll figure it out. You don't care. But, cause I'm like, <laughs> they'll be fine. They're not meant to be able to read yet. But an old person that can't read, I'm like, oh, you, you missed out. Cause I loved reading as a kid. Where did you hang out that you met all these illiterate old people? <laughs> Like, what is this? It's not like it was like common every day, every old person I met. I was like, can you read this? And I didn't <laughs> carry a, a reading test around with me. Yeah, but it was common enough for I Am Sam to remind you yeah. of these people. There are certain things. It's usually like old, like senior specific. <laughs> what <are you> <laughs> when... <laughs> I don't <laughs> What the fuck are you talking about? I'm saying <laughs> that I am Sam got to me because he couldn't read. <laughs> and the kid, Dakota yeah. Fanning, was purposely pretending that she couldn't read yeah. so that she didn't make him feel bad. Yeah, but that's goofy because like she's positioned as this like precocious child who acts above her age, and yet her that influence would have to come from somewhere. It's not just ornate, but it becomes like the movie tries to position or to pose the question like who is parenting whom? Yeah. And it's a silly question because like th- there's for example, there's a scene when Dakota Fanning gets uh, retrieved by social services. And like Sam goes to visit her for the first time since she's been detained. 
and like they're in a classroom together and there's this panel of double-sided uh glass and dakota fanning knows that there are people behind the glass watching them and how the fuck would she know that as a seven-year-old child she just wouldn't. Maybe. So, I don't know. I guess that's like the equivalent is like of like a cinema sins complaint or something stupid. But there's this like the movie doesn't actually feel like its core premise was derived from real life events, which is why it just doesn't feel grounded ever. Like it never felt grounded to you. No, like it just this this situation wouldn't happen or it wouldn't play out the way that it does. I don't think it would have played out the way it did. I don't think that it would have flown under the radar for seven years. Yeah, for sure. And also the the movie, like, there's a, this is like kind of an aside, but um, there's a scene where Michelle Pfeiffer and Sam are growing closer because like they're, they're trying to construct his case, excuse me, and what he's going to say when he's under cross-examination. So she's coaching him, and in that in that process, he is observing her life, and he like th- they are meant to they are meant to mirror each other. Like Sam is an example of a loving parent who has nothing but emotional availability for his child, and she is an example of an overworked uh, like achievement person. And um, <laughs> I didn't want to say achievement whore, but you just did. I did. So anyway, um, like, yeah, they're meant to be, they're meant to contrast each other. And he's supposed to teach her how to love her child and have patience for her boy and to leave her toxic relationship and whatever. And that part of the movie doesn't really work. Uh, The movie is afraid of suggesting that Sam could be intimate with her. I think there is a scene when they do embrace and they're, they're holding each other and crying. And then there's like, like a couple of scenes later when they greet each other again there's this awkward like nervousness and sexual tension around them is there yeah there is play 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 the clip play the clip hello i'm mr dawson yeah hello lawyer and he's all fucking smiling and sure her eyes are all lit up and stuff and shall we yeah, so it's a, just a little small moment, but it's immediately after the scene that cuts away when they're hugging and Sam's like kissing her on the face and like the hands and stuff. So it's it's implied that they have sex, but it's never really? over. It is implied. And apparently it was in the script that they did, but it was edited out of the movie because I guess they thought it would be, it would diminish uh, Sean's puppy, like, you know, whole like puppy shtick. If it turns out that he did occasionally... The boy did a man thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that implies that, you know, his overall innocence is a manipulation tactic and whatever. So I kind of wish that, like, you know, if you're going to make a movie about a disabled person having a child and then not knowing what to do, I'm totally down for that premise. Uh, if it has to be a non-disabled person to play the role because of the whatever, like I could even stomach that, especially if the movie's made in 2001. But like, if you're not even going to base it in reality or consult somebody who went through a similar thing, which they clearly didn't, then don't, don't make the movie. And I thought you said that it was based on source material. No, no, I didn't. Oh, um, so yeah, that's, that's my two cents. 
Hmm. And it, like, why why is the movie afraid of him having sex? It shouldn't be. It's just like an annoying trope. Well, it's a tricky one because when you establish that they have the mental capacity of a seven-year-old, then you also are supposed to assume that they have the ability to consent as a seven-year-old. Oh, that's true. I mean, yeah, I suppose that's true. But would 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 consent be part of the conversation in 2001? Like, was that like, I mean... I think it was always part of the conversation. <laughs> I think cavemen were like, uh, uh, club, uh, and then the one was like, eh. No, but I mean, like, would, would a general audience be thinking, like, that somebody like Sam could or couldn't consent? Like, would people be thinking in those terms? I think the people closest to the movie or, like, the source inspiration, maybe. My guess is that there was no fucking actual source material for this. They're just like, ah, he fell on top of a homeless woman. She made a baby. How does he live with the baby? But you think that there was a source person? No, I don't think there was. I'd be shocked if there was. Oh, I thought you said earlier you thought there was. Maybe he based his performance on an actual disabled person. Other than that, like, no. Plus, the amount of fucking product placement in this movie. <laughs> there are, like, minute-long ads for Why Starbucks. Why does that bother you so much? It's so annoying. Yeah? Because... It never felt like... I don't know. It, it felt canon to me. Uh, yeah. Like, Sam or you would have rather them, like, you would have rather him being, like, organizing unlabeled mugs and unlabeled yeah. packets of sugar? Yeah, yeah. President's Choice Coffee Shop. President's Choice is a brand. <laughs> no name brand pizza no dispensary name is a brand. unit. Tony. No name is one of the smartest brands ever. Okay, fine. The anti-brand brand. I don't know. I definitely noticed the product placement, but it didn't bother me the same way it bothered you. Starbucks, Pizza Hut, fucking Porsche, uh, 7-Eleven, Coca-Cola. Damn, it seems like it worked. Yeah, IHOP. It, like, he says the word IHOP six times. So you would have rather him been like, my favorite pancake place. Yes. <laughs> A movie that has Laura Dern... Michelle Pfeiffer and Sean Penn will not struggle to make the dollars back at the box office. So they don't need these fucking sponsorships from these fucking brands. And like, there's even, I, I have a clip of Sam like extolling a Pizza Hut pizza. You want to play that? I do play it, play that so, shit. Wait, I just want, I just want to confirm that <laughs> you're on a rant right now about how much your anti-product placement. Yeah. So in our podcast right now, you're yeah. asking me to play a clip of the product placement? Well, we're not Sean Penn and Michelle Pfeiffer. We need fucking ad revenue. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Pizza Hut, for sponsoring this. I can't believe we're playing this clip. <laughs> yeah, personal pepperoni pan pizza is a wonderful choice. But so that's what he does. He'll like go through branded products and be like, that's a wonderful choice. So it's just so dumb. Why does that There's like, a, oh, while you're making this really compelling uh, um, parental drama about a disabled guy, let's also make him a spokesperson for fucking grande coffees at Starbucks. <laughs> it would be funny to see your rewrite. Where you just like rename <laughs> all the product placements with like nondescript names. 
Oh, a pizza. Good choice. <laughs> you would like a coffee with stuff in it? <laughs> You're driving a car? <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's funny that it bothered you so much and it didn't bother me. Maybe I should have cared more. I don't know. But it is funny know. that it got to you so badly. I guess it's just a fucking soapbox. But what? Okay, well, there was one other thing I wanted to say and I fucking forget. Yeah, you know, I think I think I'm done. Like at the end of the movie, he decides to to have co custody of his daughter with it with the foster mother who um, is initially assigned to Dakota Fanning. That didn't even seem clear to me. And they just live happily ever after. I watched the end of the movie a few times, and it still wasn't clear that that was the choice. You had to know because Sean Penn was refing the soccer game, and Laura Dern was in the fucking pew. And so was... Yeah, but I didn't know if, like, Dakota Fanning went home with Sean Penn alone or if, like... Co-custody. He had moved in to the basement apartment of uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's new mansion or if Laura Dern was also there helping them cook dinner. Like, I, I never really figured that part out. I think the the implication was that he was, he was uh, bumping uglies with Pfeiffer. And that he was co-parenting with Laura Dern. Damn. So he's just going to have more kids at the end of it. <laughs> They're setting up the sequel. I am still Sam. Yeah, I am still Sam. <laughs> I am Sam's multiple children. Um, yeah. Overall, I, I have very mixed emotions. Because on one hand, I liked what the movie was trying to be. I liked the way that it approached it. I'm not convinced of Sean Penn's performance being correct. I don't even want to say correct, but necessarily good. Or of benefit. Yeah. I really liked Dakota Fanning. I really liked Michelle Pfeiffer. Laura Dern is good. Daniel Weiss is always, or Diane Weiss is obviously amazing. And it's an interesting thought experiment to think about what are the implications of pulling this like because arguably Dakota Fanning or Lucy is as precocious as she is because of her father's developmental disabilities. Like having to compensate for her father? Yeah. And their relationship benefited. We know that that really fucks you up. Like we've talked about this multiple times, every time the the child incurs more responsibility in some dimension than the parent, they end up getting fucked up in the long term. Maybe they definitely are different, but like uh, in my experience, uh, I have family members with various disabilities, obviously, and I think it gave me a broader perspective of people and how, like maybe taught me some empathy from a younger age than some of my peers. Yeah. And so I don't think that that is necessarily a bad thing. If anything, no. it's probably a good thing. No, but you could see how like someone being unable to provide the fundamentals of care it, like, is a form of neglect, whether you love a person unconditionally or not. Yeah, like uh, growing up in foster care, this obviously I don't think would have ever flown. No. I think he would have maybe what would have happened is 
both of them would go into a foster home together and then they could like the foster parents could more or less parent them both but kind of help him parent the child see imagine how much easier it would have been to enjoy the movie if that was the foundation yeah because it would have been a more believable premise and it could have literally just been the conflict of the film is not necessarily does Sean Penn get to raise his child, but more how does Sean Penn's disability alienate him from his child as she gets older? And how do they rectify that conflict over time as father and daughter? They almost went in that direction at one point when uh, her peers, like the daughter's peers, started questioning the father's like developmental abilities. There's one scene in particular I remember where they're all dancing together and Sean Penn is like so aggressively into it and Lucy, the daughter, is loving it and eating it up and having a great time. And then out of the corner of her eye catches that all of her classmates are looking at this spectacle sort of in shock, but laughing and sort of mocking it and she immediately gets self-conscious and takes a step back Mm. and realizes oh my dad is different which obviously she already knew but now it's at the point where it it like feels almost like a reflection on her there's also the scene a bit earlier where she gets called out for saying that she was adopted Mm -hmm. and the movie sort of abandons those uh those threads because i think it's controversial or uh it directly conflicts with the plot because if we were to go down that path of my father alienates me by virtue of having this disability it would have been way harder to sell the premise that he should be the father yeah the custody battle yeah yeah so yeah like the the foundations of the plot are flawed and it undermines like a bunch of pretty persuasive performances so then it like it raises the idea that when you're digesting a piece of art you can't strictly touch or you can't strictly trust the feelings that the the picture evokes from you because it may be coming from a wrong-headed direction and it's hard to evaluate that when you're in the middle of the experience of the movie yeah because I tend to think like if I'm having like perfect, if them if a movie or show is eliciting strong emotions from me, my gut instinct is that this is a good thing. <laughs> and actually, I feel that way about like the beginnings of relationships and some friendships. And it's like you can't you can't really ascertain if something's good for you in the short term. Does it feel good? Yeah, just because it feels good doesn't mean it is. Yeah, and that applies to more than just drugs and pizza hut pizza and sugar and sex in a pan (laughs) hey full circle by the way that goofy scene where sean penn is is dancing like no one's watching and dakota fanning gets embarrassed like there's a mirrored scene in fucking special where it's like ryan's boyfriend is doing that and then all the wheelies on the dance floor are like who's this able-bodied idiot what's he doing so that's a funny trope in movies that they go to like, oh, this person's a bad dancer, therefore... How many scenes does it make a trope? I don't know. A hundred? A hundred? 
That's too many. I, <laughs> six. Six. It's a fun visual way of like showing the embarrassment or incompetence of, of a character through the eyes of another character. Yeah. It's it's a trick. All right. Well, I feel like we've said everything we can say about this movie. Yeah. I'm ready for the sequel. I am still Sam. <laughs> Is there anything else? It feels like we've run up the clock a bit, maybe to do a wheel breaker. Yeah, we'll do a wheel breaker next episode. All right. So do we just end it there? I mean, we could. Could you sing? You want me to sing something? I kind of do. How about a Beatles song? They seem pretty on on brand today. And we know how much you love brands. <laughs> I don't like know any Beatles song to sing them offhand. Let it be, hey Jude, come together. Obladi, oblada. I am the walrus. Goo 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 I am the Eggman. Yesterday, yellow submarine. None of these. None of these strike a chord <laughs> with you. Well, okay. So, how does yesterday go? Yesterday. All oh, my troubles an easy so. game to play. I can't really fucking sing right now because Tony is the singer here. You didn't give yourself enough patience. You were on it. Okay, fine. You just rushed it. You're rushing. We're gonna have, we're gonna have to watch Whiplash again just to get you back on point. Oh, I love that movie. Well, there you go. That movie's just rocky with drums. It's so cool. Why do I love like angry, abusive uh, role model movies? Like I'll watch a thousand episodes of Kitchen Nightmares just for a garden to tell somebody they can't cook. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I feed off that shit. Sometimes I want him to just. Yell at me when I fuck up at like work sometime. <laughs> I, I know. Like, you forgot page numbers. Yeah. Page Look numbers. <laughs> you didn't even edit this. Did you even read it before you sent it to me? Look at that code, big boy. It's fucking raw. It's not going to build. There's no way he talks to you. You think Gordon Ramsay's going to talk to you like he's trying to put you to bed? What are you talking about? You're like, no way. That's you're like seducing yourself. No, I said no. I was trying to be angry, Ramsey. That was your angry Ramsey. Yeah. Can do your like seductive Ramsey then? No, there is no yeah. seductive Ramsey. Dude has like four kids. You think he just yells at his wife till they bang? <laughs> it's not gonna run. It's it won't even build. <laughs> it's throwing out of memory exceptions. I can't do it. I'm apparently too tired for accents. Your, your Gordon Ramsay is Werner Herzog. It's fucking wrong. Your Gordon Ramsay is like British Ronin from Love on the Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> it's ice cold in the middle. Just touch that. So romantic. <laughs> it's raw romantic it is. <laughs> Nah, so goofy. I can't wait to cover Love on the Spectrum and make a drinking game. What am I going to drink? Club soda? Sure. It's not about what you drink. It's about how often you have to drink it. All right. I'll just take sips of coffee. 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 All right, guys. That's it for us. Go back to doing whatever you're doing. Yeah, get back to your life. Bye. Find another way to distract yourself till next week. Uh Uh-huh. Have a good one. Take care. Goodbye. Adios. Ciao.